Okay, well, so what's this? Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen rows of shelves on one side. Two, that's twenty-six rows of shelving here, full of medical records. I'm in the bowels of Westmead Hospital in Sydney with Jude Constable, acting general manager. Okay, cool. So, is this is this it? All the medical records that we're seeing right now? These are the medical records from uh, 2015 up to the current day. And on this side, we have um, we actually scan the electronic records. So there's actually several million records that are stored either on-site or off-site. So, okay, so what I'm looking at right now is just shelves and shelves of different coloured folders and it goes on for ages and this is only 2015 like up till 2015 so the last two years that's right yeah so we we have about 8,000 discharges or so a month and so if you can imagine the number of patients that move through our services you know that that's a lot of paper generated 8,000 discharges a month that's almost 100,000 discharges per year and each patient has a couple of pieces of paper in their own folder about their time in hospital What I'm seeing today is just the tip of the iceberg. Westmead has been running for 40 years, so imagine the amount of paperwork that's stored off-site. We write down everything about people's care that is provided, the people that have looked after them, the things that we've done with them, and so that's a lot of information to keep, and obviously it's a really important part of somebody's health history that we have a very accurate record of what's happened for somebody through their journey through the hospital. Um, there is the room I'm in is probably the size of a suburban library, but instead of shelves and shelves of books, it's shelves and shelves of paper. It seems strange that in the digital world, this much paper can still exist. Hospitals are only recently making the transition to computers. Westmeet started their transition in May this year. As you'll see in a moment, there are a raft of benefits that come with going digital. The biggest one relating to data. This is Think Digital Health. I'm Ellen Liebeter, host of Think Digital Futures. And I'm Jake Morecambe, host of Think Health. Today, we're going to be exploring the intersection between data and healthcare and how making the most of numbers is benefiting the population. You'll hear how blockchain has the potential to protect our precious health data and how global data on child health is changing aid and development as we know it. But for now, you're about to head back to Westmead Hospital to find out what an electronic health record is. And so how's it working now? What's the process now? Because you're going towards electronic. Yep. So we've moved to an electronic medical record and here at Westmead that was from the 1st of May. So uh, what that means is that when a patient comes in, they're registered on an electronic system from the time of admission and all of their clinical records and their assessment and progress notes about what's happened for them through the course of their care is actually now recorded electronically directly into the system. Currently at Westmead, we're still not electronic for things like medication management. So we do have some pieces of paper that are still associated with a patient's care and they come down at discharge 
down to medical records here where they're scanned in and attached to the electronic record. Making the transition from a paper-based hospital to a fully-fledged digital hospital is no easy feat, especially in a hospital like Westmead. As you just heard, the medication records are still paper-based, so it's not completely digital yet. Mary Lamb is a senior lecturer and the acting director of Digital Health and Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney. She explains that making hospitals digital is easier when you are building them from scratch, and the challenge is getting established hospitals ready for the shift. So if you're designing a new hospital, then you can actually design it in a way that every bedside has a computer where you can directly enter um, information into the, um, into the patient record. For the older hospitals, there are also this technology called cow, so it's um, computer on view. So the clinicians, they might not have computers on every bed, near every bedside, but clinicians can sort of remember what they, they sort of talk to the patient or write down what they have and then go to um, one of the workstations or cow to enter those information into the computer system. But it's not just the tech that makes the transition harder. It's getting the staff on board as well. If you've been using paper for decades, you'd think the transition to digital would be met with resistance. But Jude Cameron from Westmead says that's not the case. The clinicians have made a tremendous adjustment and, and many of them actually said to us that, you know, everything else in my life is electronic, finally my work's caught up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we did a lot of preparation of our staff, training and support uh, and then we put in place at the go-live date for the electronic record. We had a team here 24 hours a day to actually be at the end of a phone to offer advice to anyone who needed a Assistance. The other big benefit for digital hospitals is what it means for patient safety. For patients whose records are off-site, do you get them back if they come back to Westmead? It's really a clinical judgement about what's happening with the patient. Sometimes if somebody has a history that's relevant to their current presentation, it's very important we review what's happened in the past. And what's that process like? Does the doctor have to put in like a notice or something to get those old medical records back? Well, thankfully, we have our doctors very well supported by our administration staff, so they'd just request the clinical record, would come down to the department, they'd identify where that record's retained, it would be obtained, couriered back to the hospital and provided to the doctor. In the case of Westmead, if you present to emergency with, say, an allergic reaction and maybe you're unconscious, it can take time to get your medical record back to the hospital. Or if you've been a patient at Westmead and then you move to Royal North Shore Hospital, well, your physical medical record isn't something you have in your backpack and it takes time for hospitals to share this information. Here's Mary Lamb again. In the past, when you have patients going from one hospital to another, if the patient remember to tell you I have been to Hospital X before and um, I was under that number or that name, hopefully that record can get retrieved and then sort of brought back. So in the past with paper record scenario, very often patient information is not continuous. That might be fragmented. Um, so sometimes some of the medical history might get missed. That's the beauty of e-health records, that with the tap of a few buttons, your doctor can pull up your record and see what you're allergic to, what medications you're taking, and whether or not you have a pacemaker. Future thinking, this information will be shared across the health sector. Your GP will have access to your medical info. Your x-rays will go straight into your record rather than you having to drag them around to each appointment. From the patient end of things, the health journey looks a lot more seamless. 
for them, I think the whole journey will become a lot smoother and easier for them because the information can be transferred from one hospital to another very quickly and very easily. And nowadays we are also talking about some of the discharge information can be accessed by um, general practitioners and so on. Um, so that actually makes it a lot easier for the patient. So they don't have to actually physically carry a discharge summary from the doctor to the, um, the hospital. Oh, and the other thing... Doctor's illegible handwriting is about to become a thing of the past. Actually, going digital, one of the advantage of going digital is that when doctors do prescriptions, if the handwriting is difficult to read, um, that which is true, and sometimes medication error can occur, and also the dosage they write, etc., if it's difficult to read, sometimes error can occur to get that way. But using um, company system for them to sort of type in their prescription and the dosage, that reduces the error a little bit. So ticks all round for leaps and bounds in healthcare. The drawback, of course, is the safety of all our health data. Just last month, hospitals in the UK were targeted by a global ransomware attack that locked computers and demanded money for the safe return of the patient data. No patient data was lost in the end, and the hackers didn't get paid. But it's not the first time this has happened. In 2016, a hospital in Los Angeles had the same thing happen, and they ended up paying $17,000 in Bitcoin to regain access. Hospitals are especially susceptible to these attacks because they need that patient data, and they need it immediately, so they're happy to pay up. When we talk about patient security and privacy, they're actually some different aspect we need to think about. So first of all, it's the physical security of the information. So how you can put your server in a, in a safe place so that people cannot actually go in and steal your information. Cyber attack is another thing. Um, what we, we have is that it's like basically it's a battle between virus and, and, and antibodies. So when you have virus attack, we might be a little bit late, but a lot of the, the security company, once we have a strong enough security infrastructure in place and also everybody is aware of what they need to do in terms of protecting the security of the data, then that should be minimised, that risk a little bit. The risk is always there, but it's just that we need to be aware of it and how to minimise it. But weighing up the pros and cons, probably the biggest pro is the potential that all this healthcare data is going to have on a population level. So just to go back a step, here's Jude explaining how a researcher used to have to do research. Well, they'd have to actually request all the records that they want and they'd have to then review all of the information sort of by hand, flicking through pieces of paper to get to the source of the information that they needed. But what's starting to happen is because everything is integrated, researchers can mine data for any number of topics at a population level. Richard Royal is the National Digital Health Lead for PricewaterhouseCoopers. For example, you can run a report which can show the, the same procedure that's done on multiple patients uh, and look at the amount of anaesthetic that is used, the drugs that are used, the recovery time, and the treatment uh, length of time in hospital for that cohort of patients. And you can do it by a doctor. And you're able to then start to do some comparisons to see how can you better improve patient outcome by looking at that accumulated data. And Richard knows what he's talking about. He helped create Australia's first fully integrated digital hospital in Harvey Bay in Queensland in 2014. Richard was quick to point out that this data is grouped and unpersonalised. And, you know, make no mistake, the government will quite rightly work on how you can bring together some of that pooled data to work on improving outcomes from a population perspective. 
but you've got to be very careful you don't individualise it. We are really seeing new frontiers in the space of digital healthcare. Wait till your DNA gets involved. There's trials that are going on, particularly in the United States, which can pull together the group data for an individual in terms of their genetic data. This is obviously with agreement with this individual. Their genetic data, their family history data, their health data, overlay a predictive analytic model, and you can start to predict with some level of certainty uh, potentials for you to have uh, exposure to certain illnesses into the future. Hang on a minute. Do you really want your hospital to have genetic information about you? As you just heard, there are a lot of concerns about privacy and healthcare, and justifiably so. But what if instead of entrusting your health data to a hospital, you had the control? GP visits, your allergies, even your date of birth. What if you had the say on whether or not you share that information? These personal self-regulated healthcare records are the potential of blockchain in healthcare. And Michael Bainbridge, who's a GP by trade, can explain what exactly this would look like a little better than me. Currently, it's defined by its financial sector implementation. So the obvious things are Bitcoin and other currencies. And I suppose that's the way of looking at it. It allows you to share your balance with other people. My problem as a clinician is I need better records in order to come to you with the evidence-based approach to your problem, to the current state of art of the technology. And do you see blockchain kind of being the next step? Blockchain has a number of opportunities because I have a clinical requirement. I need things to help me make decisions. Like what? Like, is this drug the best thing for your condition? Is this drug going to make you ill? Do you need a lower dose or a higher dose than normal? Is a drug the right answer? The decisions that we make increasingly are going to be joint decisions. You know, the paternalistic model of medicine that has existed, do what I say because I'm the doctor, are no longer relevant, especially as we get to Gen X, Y, Z. Within the blockchain technology, you will have your record. You will have control of your record. And how that is then brought together at the point of care will be a much more joint decision. But also, you need to be comfortable that the people you are sharing that record with need to know the information. So you might want to share more information with a GP than you would with a podiatrist, for example. And we then get into some very complex stuff around everybody who is treating you needs to have your medication, for example, because if you're seeing a podiatrist for something, the fact that you've got a rash could be something to do with your medication. But that medication may divulge an illness that you don't want a podiatrist to know about. I think the Facebook generation have a much more laissez-faire feel than perhaps people from my generation about privacy. But 
working back to blockchain, there is the need to look at how the record is put together. You can look at it as a, a balance because that's what the current implementations look like. So your, your health record is a balance and you share bits of that balance, bits of your accounts mm -hmm. with other people. And how do you like physically share that? Because I'm kind of imagining it being done on a computer, but is that right? Is that wrong? And then you might share a certain bit of information with a clinician by perhaps clicking share. Is that how it yeah, operates? And, and that will hopefully develop thinking. Um, there are existing records in the, the States, as far as they're the only ones I know of currently, where they're looking at how this might work, certainly around medicines and your prescription, your dispense record can more easily fit into a finance model. You've got a, a currency of a prescription which is converted into a dispensed medication item. You can see how that kind of works. Um, but I think there are other aspects that, to my knowledge, are just at the point of being researched and implemented. I'm intrigued, though, to hear from your perspective how a blockchain software or, or a program like that might work in the clinician setting and how it might be of betterment for both you as the GP and the patient. What would that software to you look like and, and what would be some important must-haves for it to work efficiently? The experience shouldn't actually be that different from what I currently expect. It should be safe, reliable, accurate. It's that level of this technology could bring me better knowledge from more sources and would be therefore potentially more reliable because it would have had to have gone through a number of quality processes to get there in front of me. But what it would look like to me at the point of care is what I would expect out of a good clinical system now, problem lists, allergies, medicines, some sort of story, timeline, and all of those things that a good clinical record would give me. That all still would have to be, I guess, like actually put in somewhere and logged into and then inserted into a blockchain software program or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And the concept that things would be entered once as a single source of truth your birth date is your birth date, who you choose to share that with would then be part of the proposition so that when you go to see the GP, there would be a set of data that you would be expected to share. And you know, your name and your date of birth, <laughs> um, where you choose to tell them you're living. You know, there's, there are all sorts of interesting nuances because this is not about being big brother. This is about driving higher quality, better health in martini fashion, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. <laughs> and increasingly with a mobile population, with a mobile, you know, mobility is much more prevalent now than it was 20 years ago. I want to receive the best possible healthcare at 3am wherever I am. And you know, it's not a privilege, it's the right I have as a, a member of a civilized society. So it's how do we get to that point? Because at the minute, if your record is locked in a GP surgery or locked in a hospital outpatients, 
and something in that would improve your care, then it's no good being locked there. Definitely not at three o'clock in the morning. Not at three o'clock in the morning, exactly. And it's how do we get to that comfort that the data will be shared, but it also will be shared appropriately. What I haven't talked about is we need to work the data so that every time a decision is made, it adds to the knowledge and real-time feedback into our algorithms so that we actually get real data driving your care and the outcomes and the benefits or disbenefits. Some things will not work and we need to make sure that those are fed back. Because looking back at things in my career, there was a product which came on the market which was proven to significantly reduce the damage of heart attacks. There was a randomized controlled trial which proved that it worked. But even with those evidence... It took 18 years and another bunch of randomized controlled trials, which were probably unethical because they were actually withholding a drug that had already been proven to work from people. But it took 18 years for that drug to be put into regular clinical practice. Now, that's we can't have that. It's just a nonsense. So the feeding back and the working of the data from the point of care, is part of what the opportunity is. Now, Bitcoin and blockchain are potentially part of that process. Exactly how that works today, I'm not sure I'm clever enough to tell you. (laughs) I think there is just this very interesting opportunity. And whether that's just the potential disruption or whether that's because we're having to think about these things in a completely different way, I'm not entirely sure yet. Michael Bainbridge, Head of Clinical Engagement at the International Health Terminology Standards Development Organisation. You're listening to Think Digital Health, a collaboration between Think Digital Futures and Think Health. We'll be back after this. Just words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this the pressing issue of our time? Just Words is an original 2SER series. This new podcast goes beyond the hype and headlines of our race discrimination laws and gets the true stories from those that have used 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and those that have had it used against them. New episodes will be released every Monday, starting from February 27. To listen, just head to iTunes or your favourite podcast app and search for Just Words. Subscribe today. Welcome back to Think Digital Health on 2SER, a collaboration between Think Digital Futures and Think Health. Healthcare as we know it is changing in Australia, but let's spread the net even further. 
Developing countries face a whole range of health challenges, from access to clean water and sanitation, food and healthcare services. And in many countries, it's children who struggle the most. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are funding a mammoth project that is taking research on children's development from places like Africa, Indonesia and South America. And they're attempting to translate data sets from millions of kids into practical research. Louise Ryan is a professor of statistics at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's involved in the project and explained what it's all about. There's a guy, he uh, works for the foundation. His name is Dr. Shasha Jambe. I'm never quite sure how to pronounce his last name, but he's an amazing person. He's from Africa and he grew up in a place where his life could have easily gone in a very different direction. He was surrounded by lots of people who didn't have the right opportunities and who didn't manage to go off and get an education and travel the world. And he managed to navigate his way through and got to a place where he's now like this high-up guy at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But he remembers his roots and he remembers that for so many other kids, it could have easily been him. It could have been very different. So he just had this has this passion for making a difference. And I think he sees his, his opportunity at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where they have like a ridiculous amount of money to sponsor good ideas. He's just got this audacious idea about trying to utilize a lot of the data sets that are out there. And, you know, you've got people here over here doing a study and analyzing their data. Somebody else over there is doing a study, doing something a little bit different, their data. Another group over here with their data. Shasha's idea was, what if we could bring those data sets together? Wouldn't that be amazing. Wouldn't that be a situation where you get the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts? So he's had this audacious idea to convince people all over the world to put their precious data into this repository where we can start to do what we call integrative analyses, drawing insights from multiple studies, seeing does it match across the studies, why does it work here and not there and so on. Very challenging, but if it works, it's an absolute game changer. So what's your role in all of this? My role has kind of evolved because the project is so massive. One of the challenges with it sometimes, those of us who are involved, we're like, well, what are we actually supposed to be doing? It's so big that it's sometimes hard to figure out what you're actually supposed to be doing. But my role at the moment is to be developing some of the tools that allow you to do those kinds of integrative analyses. What sort of data sets are we talking about? Like what in particular about child health are we looking at here? Well, for example, a lot of the data sets we have, they're from kids who are in developing countries. So most of the studies would be in sort of less fortunate populations. There are some studies in the US and in Europe. With a lot of the kids, we look at something, they call it the Z-score. Basically, the idea is that most people should be between plus or minus two. So... For example, if you are looking at somebody's blood pressure and they say, oh, you've got high blood pressure, well, the way that they determine what's high for blood pressure is that you're beyond that upper two and a half percentile of a, quote, typical normal population. Or similarly, if you look, oh, your child's, they're not thriving, they're not growing enough, they're in that lower percentile. So a lot of what's determined in the health setting to be normal or not normal is when you're in in the tails. So what they'll do with a lot of outcomes, health outcomes, is they'll they'll rescale them to this, what they call the normal scale, the the Z-score. So the normal values are between plus or minus two. And if you're outside that range, then it's an indicator that something might be wrong. 
So they tend to use this kind of thing as a way to sort of track where does this person or this child sit compared to what they should look like if they were like in a normal healthy population. And so when we're looking at developing countries and the children in those developing countries, you're looking at the Z scores for a variety of different health yeah. issues? Yeah. So the World Health Organization has developed them for uh, height, weight, BMI, body mass index, head circumference. Why head circumference? Oh, it's got to do with, it's supposed to be a, something of a marker for developing brain and so on. You want a nice big head, so you've got you know, lots of brains in there and, and that kind of thing. But it's just a marker of growth. Um, they can actually look at things like that even prenatally as well. Some of our studies in the Gates repository are kids start to get monitored prenatally as well. The really disturbing thing is when you look at some of the studies, what will happen is the kids might start out okay, but then those Z-scores just start to plummet. If you had a kid in Sydney where the Z score was maybe minus two and a half, you'd be thinking, oh, that's a bit low. You might be a bit worried about that kid. We have lots of studies where the kids are minus four, minus five, like really, really, really low. And so when you start to see those sorts of values, you think, my goodness, what's going on here? Are these kids, um, they're not getting enough nutrition or they're not getting the right nutrition. Then they're not having the right environment to help them thrive. So what does this repository look like from your end? It's huge. And one of the challenges with the repository, it is overwhelming. There's over 100 studies and some of the studies have hundreds of thousands of kids. So we've got millions of kids in this repository. The studies have not been done in a, they're all different. So, you know, they measure things in different ways and doing different repeated sort of follow-ups on the kids and interested in completely different sorts of questions. Some studies have very detailed information about nutrition and we're measuring blood biomarkers for different nutritional parameters and so on. Other studies were interested in brain development and had MRI scans and all sorts of things like that. So it's absolutely overwhelming. I mentioned before that a lot of what a modern-day statistician or slightly more generally a data scientist has to do is not only do the modeling but also find ways to handle the just the sheer volume and complexity of the data. We are currently working on some tools that allow a user to try to go in and just figure out what's there, what studies have measured what. It sounds like a simple question to ask, but it's actually really difficult because the way it's set up now, if you really wanted to say, oh, okay, I want to know which studies are measuring um, cognition. To answer that question, you have to go in and look at all the studies and say, okay, what are the variables that are related to cognition? Which studies are measuring that? How many kids have they got? It could take you months just to get the code in place to go in and pull out all of those studies. So what our team is currently trying to do is to develop some tools. We're using this technique called R-Shiny, which is a way that you can create interactive tools that somebody who might not be super sophisticated from a programming point of view can use these tools to navigate around and figure out what's there. So how are, we, how are you comparing the data then if, you, if each study is using different methods? Well, that's part of what we're struggling with at the moment. We're at the moment trying to look at what we call a meta-analysis, looking at the relationship between diarrheal experience and subsequent growth for the kids, the way we're doing it. We're going through each individual study, 
doing an analysis and then extracting out, say you're trying to predict child growth and you want to know how does the experience of diarrhea affect child growth. So you run what's called a regression analysis and there's there's a coefficient that's a thing that captures the relationship between those two variables. So it might be that like if I get 10% more diarrhea in the first year of life, well, that will correspond to a 20% decrease in the rate of growth in the first year of life, that kind of thing. So you have these estimators that you're trying to extract from each study that tell you what the relationship between diarrhea and child growth is for that particular study. But it's quite nuanced. You have to take account of, you know, how old were the kids, uh, what was their gender, what was their socioeconomic environment like, all sorts of things like that. Each study is different, as you say. That's why our strategy is to do each study-specific analysis separately, save all of the pieces from each of those separate studies, then pull those together. And you can create these plots that tell you about what is the overall pattern, what is the study-to-study variability, and you can get a a nice sense of what is that overall pattern, what is the study-to-study variability. Where does Shash hope that all this data goes? Like, how is it going to be used to inform? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, so I believe that his vision is, in some ways, it's it's a ridiculous vision. He wants to have every kid in the world having a great life and thriving, and you know, developing physically, emotionally, and cognitively into a you know highly successful life. So his goal is to use this repository to help understand who to intervene with when. And how. I think, as I've heard him describe it, there's, even though you might say, well, the Gates Foundation has lots and lots of money, it's still a limited pot. And you have to make decisions about what kind of interventions am I going to invest in? Which kids do I intervene on? And do I inv- intervene when the kids are first born? Or do I intervene when the mothers are pregnant? Or maybe even before the mothers are pregnant? So it's trying to come up with a decision tool that helps the people who have the purse strings and who are able to make decisions about which interventions to fund. It's to help them make those decisions so that you've got the best bang for the buck in terms of changing the outcome for children. Is it it quite problematic because, I don't know, in a theoretical universe, you could say, well, there's no point intervening when the child is eight because we know it's too late and there's nothing yeah. we can do. Look, to be blunt about it, yes, you could you could say that. So if you say, okay, we have a limited pot of resources to invest and if you know that at a certain point that basically you're not going to be able to do anything for that child, it's a bit too late, It's as harsh as that sounds, you're much better off to intervene with kids where you know that it can make a difference. And it's also when do you make a difference? So do you feel like you're making a difference on this project? Oh, look, I do. I do feel like we're making a difference. I will say there are times when I do feel a bit overwhelmed by the project because it is so large and the the broader goals are so lofty and so wonderful in terms of, you know, helping all kids thrive. And then you think about what we're doing. We're trying to calculate these growth trajectories and figure out, you know, faltering and catch up and all those sorts of things, our stuff can seem a long way removed from those lofty goals. But you just have to remember that you're part of a much larger puzzle and that you contribute your piece. And that's something I've always tried to keep in mind as a biostatistician, that my 
peace on its own is not going to change the world. But my peace in collaboration with contributions from a much larger team can make a massive difference. Louise Ryan, Professor of Statistics at the University of Technology, Sydney. So data is changing the way we store our medical history. It's also teaching us more about hospital performance and ultimately changing the way we treat patients. Using data to monitor stroke patients in hospital could provide greater insight into how we deliver care, what type of care is needed for different patients and the needs of the patient after leaving hospital. Dominique Cadillac is custodian of the Australian Stroke Data Tool and Clinical Registry. And Dominique says this type of monitoring is crucial in addressing a condition that remains the second biggest cause of death in Australia and leading cause of adult disability. We have collected information around clinical care and we understand from having explored those data over many years that the care people receive while they are in hospital can impact on the outcomes. Now, a person that experiences stroke, depending on which part of their brain has been impacted, that can influence whether they can speak, whether they can use their hand, whether they can walk, whether they can think clearly. And so because it's such a complex and devastating condition, because it has a very sudden onset but then causes chronic disability after that, we have needed to have better information in which we can reduce the impacts of those strokes in our health system. And the way in which we can do that better is by having systematic monitoring and then looking at ways in which we can reduce gaps in the quality of care in hospital. And that's really the essence of why we have the clinical registry because it's not just about monitoring, it's about feeding back that information through online reports that we provide to the hospitals that they can download at any time. They can also extract their own data so they can review it themselves. And so custodian, what are your roles within that custodian title? Well, that means I have overarching responsibility for how the data are collected, how they are used, who accesses the data and the day-to-day operations and oversight of the team. How exactly, how do you record this data and in what form is this data? Our data are collected in a web tool. It is now since the 1st of July 2016. We're using an integrated data management system called the Australian Stroke Data Tool. And this permits not only our group to collect data on patients in the hospitals, but also other groups. And it means that when people are collecting information to report on the quality of care, that we're not duplicating our effort. And then we can correlate that with their health outcomes when they've left hospital which is a unique feature of our registry because we don't just capture deaths, we actually capture whether or not people are living well in the community and their own patient-reported outcomes in terms of quality of life. So importantly, the hospital clinicians are required to collect the data on their patients and put it into our system. So if these clinicians have to collect those data on the same patients where some questions might be the same or some might be different, it means that they're no longer having to log into different systems to collect that data and it's avoiding a lot of duplication. 
So that's at the front end. That's what happens to patients in hospital and recording that information, including when they came in, when they go home or where they get discharged to. And then with the Australian Stroke Clinical Registry, we also then send out a survey to patients between 90 and 180 days after their stroke. And if they don't reply by mail, we will follow them up with a telephone call. If we don't find all our patients, we also do annual linkage to the National Death Index, and that allows us to at least know survival information out to several years after someone's had a stroke. And another interesting part of this too is that you also recording stroke severity. How, how are you doing that and why? Given the growth in public reporting of hospital performance and its recognition of its potential impetus to improve quality of care, it is essential that we use appropriate methods to compare hospitals. And one of the critical things in stroke, we have found that um, including stroke severity is one of the most important variables to include, as well as stroke type and whether or not it's a first or recurrent stroke, in, in addition to other things that are important like age and gender. And this is because different patients or groups of patients may come to different hospitals for whatever reason and their case mix might be different. So in terms of stroke severity, we have found that whether or not a person can walk when they first come to hospital is a really important marker of whether or not they're going to have a good outcome after stroke. The other measure that we've been collecting is the National Institute of Health Scale score. And this is also very good at allowing us to adjust our information and ensure that our hospitals are being compared fairly because we're able to account for patient characteristics that might differ between the hospitals so then it has nothing to do with the differences in what the hospitals are doing it's more about the patient profile so it's really important especially in stroke because it's such a heterogeneous condition and affects people very differently and survival can vary between the hospitals unless you take these patient characteristics into account you could be judging a hospital to be very different to its peers when in fact it may not be. Where are some of those or what are some of those other gaps in healthcare that you think could benefit from, I guess, more proficient data collection and analysis aside from stroke? Well, I think other large areas would include things like heart disease. I think anywhere where you have multiple contacts with health professionals along a recovery process is where um, having a clinical registry may be needed. So if there's a large burden of disease, if there's a potential for clinical variation in what people are doing and there's some evidence of that and we know that there is a relationship between receiving good care and patient outcome, that would justify having a clinical registry because there's no point just having data that then not used to improve quality of care. So does data in healthcare excite you or overwhelm you? I find it really exciting. I'm a leading health services researcher in this space and, you know, it may not be as exciting as developing a new drug as a researcher or or some fancy pants, um, you know, novel gizmo, but 
I find that if we are better at using data and helping to guide clinical practice, we can do so much more to improve uh, healthcare within our society. And for me, that is really rewarding. We're really excited too that we're in a space now where data linkage has really taken off and we really are able to trust the data that we're linking through to our stroke registry patients. So that's the next phase of our work in linking through the hospital data with um, ambulance data and Medicare data, just to look at that whole patient journey and to really understand where we can better work effectively with clinicians to improve outcomes for people with stroke. Dominique Cadillac, Data Custodian of the Australian Stroke Data Tool and Australian Stroke Registry. Thanks for listening to the show today. Today's program has been a collaboration between Think Digital Futures and Think Health. Jake, if people want to hear more from you, where can they go? On your favourite podcast app, just search for Think Health. The show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. Bye for now. Bye.